Okay, um, I'd like to thank everybody um, who came in person, as well as our um, online watchers and future archive watchers. Um, and for any of your colleagues that come in late in the back, tell them that this whole front row is empty. Um, so I'm, I'm really pleased to be able to introduce Ross Kagan to give uh, grand rounds today. Um, uh, he's, he's a very sought after speaker, and so it took like a year to set this up, I think. Um, so Ross is a... Uh, um, a professor of developmental and regenerative biology, as well as, so this is at um, Icon School of Medicine at uh, Mount Sinai, but he is also the associate dean um, for the Graduate of Biological, Graduate School of Biological Sciences, um, as well as the director of an institute that he started, which is called um, uh, uh, Center, I guess, Center of uh, Personalized Cancer Therapeutics, um, amongst other things, which I'll just keep it to those three. Um, so before we get started, I need to say that um, uh, Dr. Kagan does not have any financial interests, um, does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and is not getting uh, direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity, this activity today. Um, so, um, uh, so like I said, it's it's a really great pleasure to, to invite Ross. I don't think I've ever invited him anywhere, ever. Um, but um, I first uh, met Ross when um, I was a graduate student and back when he was much cooler and slightly less gray. Um, so I was this uh, lowly little graduate student and Ross was part of a group of postdocs in an adjacent lab um, that we all thought were like super sophisticated and super smart and very ambitious. So it made for a really awesome environment for um, students to kind of uh, look up to their uh, uh, you know, very ambitious colleagues. And so um, uh, Ross's career started um, before that at, uh, as an undergrad anyway, at University of Chicago, where his career diverted from a uh, lead guitarist in some kind of indie punk rock alternative band, I think, to something having to do with biological research. He then continued on um, doing graduate studies at Princeton, um, where he worked with Don Reedy. Um, Reddy, sorry. And, uh, and also, um, he did a postdoc at UCLA, which I was referring to, um, with Larry Zapersky. And in those last two labs, he um, he uh, was really studying signaling and basic mechanisms uh, relating to uh, organogenesis and, and development. And since that time, he his first independent um, job was at Washington University, uh, where he was for about 14 years. And then he moved on to Mount Sinai, where he's been in about six years. And in that um, career transi transition, he's really um, diverted his research a bit from basic uh, organogenesis kind of questions to applying these mechanisms to human disease. And so that's what I'll talk about today. Thanks, Rod. I, I really have nothing more to add. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me out. Thank you, Patricia, for bringing me out here. It's definitely been a lot of fun. Thank you guys for coming out to see a fly talk. I know that's a leap. Uh, for those of you who are clinicians, this is for you. Um, so um, I, I am the fly guy, or not the fly guy, I am a fly guy. And let me just take, say a few things. Uh, my disclosure is the main one is that I do have a company, Medros. This is medicines from Drosophila, not medicines from Ross. Um, and <laughs> nothing that I'm going to talk about today has really anything to do with uh, the company. But just so you know, I'm also, in addition to all that stuff, I'm an editor of Disease Models and Mechanisms. And the reason I put this up is because I've actually already taken a picture of you guys. I expect to see papers from you in the next six months there. <laughs> so this is what I'm going to talk about. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about three things. So you should always focus on, for you students, you should always focus on one story and tell it all the way through. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about three stories. I'm going to talk about how we uh, build complex drugs using fruit flies and medicinal chemistry. Then I'm going to talk about and why I like complex drugs, polypharmacology. I'm going to talk about complex models and why that matters. Uh, so we've not had a lot of success in uh, cancer clinical trials, as I'll show you in a moment. And we're going to discuss from our lab and our view of why, what some of the problems are. And finally, I'm going to finish with uh, a new center I've opened up, as Patricia mentioned, Center for uh, uh, Personalized Cancer Therapeutics, where we have actually quite a number of patients in there now. And we take fruit flies, and we use them to identify personalized drug cocktails. Okay? I'm going to do all that in the next about 50 minutes. So the first question I'm going to start with is, why another cancer model? Let's be honest, we have a lot of them. Okay? And one way I can justify that is showing here, this is success rates for um, many major um, tumor types, success rates of drugs in clinical trials. Now remember, all of these drugs have succeeded in most of our best models. That's why they made it into very expensive clinical trials. So for example, I'm going to talk about colorectal cancer as part of my talk today. 3% of drugs that go into clinical trials get approved for colorectal. And the truth is, the bar is extremely low. We don't really have much of anything as second-line therapy on colorectal cancer. It's the second leading killer, <coughs> cancer killer of Americans. And that's, you know, 3%, you know, I was thinking about this. If, you, if I took 100 kinase inhibitors and just put them into clinical trials at random, I bet I could get more than three of them approved. So my point from this is that while our models have been really amazing <clears throat> at teaching us a lot about uh, the pathways that drive tumors and so on and so forth, they have not been useful from a predictive value at getting useful drugs that help patients. All right, bottom line. So uh, some of the, so as as Patricia mentioned, I've come into the field relatively recently, really only devoted. Um, full efforts to cancer and also diabetes about seven years ago. And in that short amount of time, um, a few themes have emerged from our work that I want to just uh, discuss. And then I'll move on to actual data. So what, what are some of the problems? First of all, I think probably most people here who have been in the cancer field at all would agree. A key problem is that uh, most of what we do is to try to simplify the problem, right? So I have a gene. I worked on it as a postdoc. It's overexpressed in cancer, so it must be the best therapeutic target. Let's drug it. So that has worked sometimes, but overall, that has not been a very successful approach. And um, we early on, and I think other labs uh, also, and now it's sort of getting to be the thing, really have come to appreciate that you can't simplify cancer. You can't, in some cases, I think, you can't really, as an overall strategy, just hit single targets. I think cancers are just not going to be amenable to that for the most part. I'm happy to be wrong on that, and there are certainly counterexamples to that. But overall, I think that has not worked well. Also, a, a fundamental assumption that we make, and it's such an assumption that I think we and I forget that we make it, is that when we go through tumors, um, when we try to identify drivers, if I'm, say, a genomicist or a bioinformaticist, um, or if I'm a geneticist, what I'm really doing is I'm looking for what's common between the patients. Um, and that's really all my strategies, right? So I see this often in patients. Therefore, it must be a driver. 
I don't see this in very many patients. Therefore, it's probably not a driver. But that makes the assumption that there are relatively few avenues to the same end, right? So you, there's only a certain number of ways to make a tumor. The other possibility is that there are many ways to make a tumor. And that the only way you're really going to get at it is to go patient by patient by patient. Now, I don't know that that's the case. And I'm not advocating that we all just go patient by patient. But as you'll see at the end, my lab is basically taking that strategy and asking the question, how much complexity do we have to know? Uh, I think most people here would agree that one gene is not enough. Is it two? Is it four? Is it 100? We don't know the answer to that. And before we decide whether we want to go patient by patient, maybe we should answer that question first and then decide what to do about it. Okay? And that's a key strategy that my lab has gone to. Finally, I'll end with um, this slide with this, which is I want to distinguish um, tumor-based screening from whole animal screening. So uh, as you're going to hear, my lab does a lot of whole animal screening, drug screening. And the answer is why. And often the, uh, and the question is why. And they, often the answer is given, well, you get drugs that are less toxic. But that's not why you do whole animal screening. Okay? I can screen a drug in an in vitro system and then just test it in an animal and find out if it's toxic. And sure, I would save you know, a few weeks, but that's not really the reason why you do whole animal screening. What we find is that the drugs we identify in our whole animal screens are of a different class than those that we identify on what I'll call tumor-focused screening. So we identify drugs that act not just in the tumor, that first of all, they have many activities. We have single targeting drugs in our libraries. My lab has some very large chemical libraries. We basically never hit those, okay? What we hit is low specificity drugs that hit many targets, and I'll show some examples of that. Um, but what we find is that when we, because this is something you can do in flies, when we map out the activities, let's say the drug has you know, five activities that matter, we can show that in flies, which of the activities actually matter. We'll find commonly that, say, three of the activities are in the tumor, one of the activities in the microenvironment, and another activity is required in the skeletal muscle or the liver or the brain that then somehow feeds back to the tumor and helps shrink it down. And in fact, we can show by drugs that have been approved that many of the drugs, you know, why does this RAP inhibitor work and these eight didn't? We can show that that's because this RAP inhibitor actually has several activities. And those, those off-target activities actually are acting elsewhere in the animal that cause the tumor to shrink. Okay? So this is sort of a background to the approaches that we're beginning to take and some of the conclusions we're, we're seeing with these. Okay, so how did my lab get into uh, cancer. It's definitely disease is a thing now. I was not that perceptive to think, oh, I should study disease because someday that's going to be important. Um, basically, we stumbled into it from a conversation. A friend, a friend of mine back at WashU, Paul Goodfellow, studied a uh, cancer syndrome called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2. Some uh, clinicians should be familiar with this. The primary problem from this syndrome is what's called medullary thyroid carcinoma. Okay. And you only need to know a couple things about MTC. First of all, it's one of the few thyroid tumor types that can be fatal. All right? And that's because the tumor commonly metastasizes away from the thyroid. And then what happens is you spend the next several years chasing these various mets until it hits something that you can't chase anymore. Okay? The second thing you need to know about it is that in in, especially in patients that uh, emerge from the uh, MEN2 syndrome, 
the dominant mutation is an activating mutation in the RET receptor tyrosine kinase. Right? And this is a high-resolution crystallographic structure of RET. <laughs> Basically, it binds GDNF and fa its family members. It has a cofactor. Upon binding ligand, it dimerizes. And then it activates downstream pathways, transphosphorylates. It activates downstream pathways like BRAS and SARC and June kinase and all the good pathways that we all know and love. And I'll get back to those later. But mercifully, I'm not going to talk about that quite yet. And their uh, patients have activating mutations either in the extracellular domain that force spontaneous dimerization by uh, causing a spontaneous uh, disulfide bond, or in a rare but uh, more severe form, intracellular domain that actually disorders the activation loop and leaves the kinase cleft open all the time. That receptor is actually active as a monomer. OK, so activated RET. And the result is a variety of tumors, but in particular, these thyroid tumors. So how do you model uh, this uh, tumor? So Paul Goodfellow was complaining that they knew that RET was driving the tumor. There was still no approved therapies for it. It was very frustrating. It seemed like a very simple, solid tumor. And I said what any good fly person would say. That's just a signaling problem. You should study that in, RET, in flies. And he said, flies, white eye, red eye, that sort of thing. So I had to explain to him that we've come a long way from them. <laughs> for those of you who haven't been paying attention to flies, well, first of all, I don't understand why not. They're great. But second of all, um, to, and in short, what you can do in flies, and I see there's a lot of basic biologists here, so you know this, is that you can turn any gene on or off in any cell, forget cell type, any cell at any stage you wish. And I'll show you, you know, 12 hit flies. Okay? So they're very powerful. So how do you make a thyroid cancer model in a fly. So first of all, let me just tell you flat out, flies don't have a thyroid. They have a very skinny neck. We may have missed it, but I don't think so, because they don't make <laughs> calcitonin and the other things that these cell types make. Right? So, and I probably, if we were to start today, I would never do this. What we did is we took it and we stuck it in our favorite tissue, the eye. All right, so here is a, a scanning electron micrograph of a normal eye. You can see it's beautifully patterned, these little unit eyes here. And this is an ion RET, okay? In this case, the 2B, the intracellular form. We can put fly RET or human RET mutated in there. You get basically the same thing. And I hope you can see that you have little tumors growing out of it. You also have switches in cell fate. If you pop the top and look underneath, you'll see overproliferation. Um, you'll see compensatory apoptosis. And also, you'll see cells packing up and leaving the eye and going off to distant sites. So the eye actually ends up getting a bit smaller, okay? Many of the aspects that you see in the patient, we see here. It's not a perfect model, but as you'll see, it turns out to be a useful one. Okay. So we did a large-scale genetic screen. We identified 140 genes that drive oncogenic RET, allow it to make a tumor. I'm not going to talk about that. Probably the more interesting thing we did is we developed a method for growing flies in 96-fold plate format. Because okay? we realize the purpose here is not to understand the tumor, it's to treat the tumor. So if we have mechanism but no therapeutic, we lose. But if we get a therapeutic and we have no idea what the mechanism is, that's a win. Okay? So basically, we grow flies in a deep 96-volt plates. We have liquid handlers that move food and drug into each well, and it mixes it up and down. We then have a modified fax order from Union Biometrica that we program in how much. So for example, 10 embryos go into each well. Um, we, um, so we fill it with food, drug, embryos. We put an oxygen permeable lid on top. Um, we put them in the incubator. The flies hatch out. They eat the food. They eat the drug. And then we basically run a phase three clinical trial right in the dish. 
Okay? And we can screen large numbers of drugs in this way. And um, so this actually worked, I have to say, or I wouldn't be telling you all this. <laughs> Cut to the chase, because I have a lot to go through. Here is a fly with oncogenic ret targeted to the eye. And we got exactly one hit in these drugs, which seems to be what we always get, so it's very convenient. <laughs> um, we got one hit, which originally called ZD64, actually originally just called it a number. Turns out it's a, a compound originally called ZD6474. And I hope you can see that in the presence of the, of the oncogene, that this fly is all better just eating this drug. Okay? So what was really interesting is that this drug can make this fly all better at a, at a dose 30-fold lower than was required to harm the fly in any way that we could identify. So if concentration in the food goes to therapeutic index and the fly was a human, I would say that the therapeutic index of this is about 30. And a typical therapeutic index for a drug that is efficacy over toxicity is like three, five, okay, if you're lucky. So I got very excited, went running around the Washington Medical Center there and saying, we have this drug, you should just give this to people, this will cure cancer. <laughs> So it turns out you can't do that, which is really annoying. There are many annoying parts about this, but this is the beginning of my uh, training in actual cancer uh, real world. But as it turns out that this drug was um, previously in clinical trials, so it turns out this was actually a drug, which is the first thing I didn't know when we first hit it. And it was a drug that was in clinical trials almost a decade earlier. It was not made as a red inhibitor or anything like that. It was actually made as a VEGF receptor antagonist. It was made by AstraZeneca, and the goal was to choke the blood supply off of breast, tumor, breast tumors. And you're going to choke the blood supply off. Some of you um, who are my age remember this these days. You're going to choke off the blood supply, and you're going to kill the tumor out. So this one, like all the other ones, didn't work so well. If you cut off blood supply to a tumor, it grows up your blood supply and gets more aggressive. And this failed. But it had been in phase one. It didn't help anyone, but it didn't harm anyone. It was shelved. So what we ended up doing basically was repurposing this drug. And I do want to give important credit also to Massimo Santoro, whose laboratory in Naples showed that this drug could be effective in um, MTC cells in a dish. And then Sam Wells, who literally just showed up in my office one day saying, I heard you had some interesting data, took this drug into clinical trials. Um, and just to cut to the chase, because I need to move on, this, dr this drug is now has a name, Vandetinib. Actually, it has a commercial name, which I don't want to say. And, um, it's now approved for still first-line therapy for medullary thyroid carcinoma, okay? In April of 2011. So I have to say, honestly, that worked way better than I expected. So I did two things. Moved to New York and switched my lab from development to disease because I was very impressed with what flies could do to get at these issues. So let's talk a moment about what does vandetinib do? First of all, is it a red inhibitor? And the answer is it does hit red, but very poorly. Okay, and I'll show you data that says I don't think inhibiting red is the answer. But actually, it hits a number of targets, and AstraZeneca now agrees with us on this point. It hits a number of targets. It's basically the world's worst kinase inhibitor. It hits many targets, but it hits them in just the right ratio that the fly and we can take that hit, but the tumor has difficulty handling that. And in fact, Sam Wells tells me that those patients who respond to the drug, which is about 60 to 70% of patients who take it, for those who respond to the drug, um, only 20% become resistant to it after two years of taking uh, uh, the drug, which is really unusual for a, a cancer drug. 
Okay? Now, there are a number of reasons for that. It's a slow-growing tumor and so on. But I think one reason for that is a reasonable possibility is that it's like HIV therapy when you give them cocktails. You're hitting so many targets that the tumor finds it difficult to get around all of those targets. Okay? And furthermore, the toxicity, we predicted that other more specific RET inhibitors would be quite toxic, and that has borne out in clinical trials. The cleaner it is towards RET, roughly speaking, the, more, the worse it crashed and burned because we actually need RET to, uh, for homeostasis. And I think that's often the case that a lot of these sort of cancer nodes in the cancer <clears throat> networks, when you drug them and you pull that out of the overall network, in very many cases, that's going to be very toxic, right? Because you're going to collapse that network. And these are often networks that you need for general cell physiology, okay? All right, so let me move forward with this. So now I'm going to talk about some work that was done by Derta Das, a spectacular postdoc in my lab, and doing this work with Kayvon Chokot, one of the uh, world's best uh, kinase uh, chemists, and his postdoc, Arvind Dar, who's now a professor um, at Mount Sinai, and that's because we basically sucked him up after this work. And the poor guy, I'm on him like every week. Um, what Derta did is he set up a system now, no more rough eyes. He actually expressed oncogenic ret through many parts of the fly. The fly gets riddled with tumors and dies. And he calibrated the system, which we can do with flies, so that half the flies make it to pupation, and the oncogene turns on just before pupation, and none of them make it to adult. Okay? Now, if I was a drug company, this would be a very simple problem. Everything that's wrong with that fly is due to oncogenic RET. Right? We know this. We made the fly. So it's very simple. Just give them a RET inhibitor and stop the tumor. Done. So there were no clean red inhibitors when we started this work. So these guys made one called DLO6. At the highest dose you can give this red inhibitor before you kill everything, you can see it doesn't do much. Okay? And that, in fact, as I said, is basically what's happened with patients as well. So we did a screen, and we got, once again, one hit, okay? which I'll call AD1 for Arvindar1. All right, and here's the chemical, and you know that we patented this because I'm showing you the structure. Um, AD1, as you can see, is a lovely hit. And not only is it relatively low in tox because you're getting um, um, animals to pupate, but actually you're finally starting to get some adults. And I should say, if we look at vandetinib or other similar compounds, we get maybe 5 to 10% adults. All right. Now here is 82 and 83. What's interesting about these two compounds, 82 is chemically identical to 81, except 82 is missing this trifluoromethyl group, just this one piece here. That small change causes 82 to become highly toxic. Right? 83, identical to 81, but it has an extra methylene group here at, this, at these core rings, and that basically destroys much of its activity. So small changes in this drug cause dramatic changes in efficacy. <coughs> and chemists who were looking at these actually at first had a hard time believing that because they said these changes shouldn't really matter very much. But you can see they matter. The reason I'm showing you this is we took a closer look at AD2 and asked, why is this so toxic? And the answer turns out to be very revealing and allowed us to make a next generation AD1. Okay. Now, here's where I need to mention that we had done a screen against oncogenic rat. Renee Reed, a former uh, student in my lab, who's now a professor at Emory, she had done a screen. She identified 140 genetic modifiers, which doesn't matter what that means, 
basically 140 genes that mediate RET um, ability to create a tumor. And the bulk of them went into three pathways. I'm simplifying things a little bit here. RAS signaling, which is dominant for proliferation. SARC signaling, which is dominant for metastasis. And my lab has done a lot of work on SARC. And PI3 kinase signaling, which sort of pumps the system up. The rate-limiting enzymes are RAF, mTOR, and SARC. So in a perfect world, we would have a drug that would hit those three major pathways, okay? And that would be the most efficient way to choke the tumor out according to our genetics. So let's look at the in vitro kinase data and just ask, what do these drugs hit, all right? Emphasizing these kinases and also that guy. So first of all, so here's 81, 2, and 3. This is in vitro kinase data actually on human panels. You can see that they all hit RET equally, and that does not correspond to their activity. Okay? So let's look at 81. It hits SARC, it hits BRAF, it hits mTOR. It gets all three. That's beautiful. That's why 81 works. Okay? So let's look at 82. It hits SARC, it hits mTOR, but it leaves BRAF alone. Now, why would not hitting a target make you a worse drug, sorry, a more toxic drug? And the answer, and we weren't the only ones to find this, actually several labs fell on this about the same time, is that there is an inhibitory, it's an inhibition, a feedback, feed across from mTOR to RAS signaling, okay? So this activity inhibits this activity. If you inhibit mTOR, and you think about that a moment, RAS signaling is going to rise because it's now released. Not just in the tumor, and actually 82 makes the tumor more aggressive, not less. But RAS is going to rise throughout the body of the animal. And we could show these in flies in many ways. Okay, they got extra wing venation and so on and so forth. But let me show you how we know that 82 is toxic because of this target. All right? If we just genetically, in the presence of the drug, remove, hello, there we go, one copy of the downstream target of RAS, ERK, that's sufficient to account for all the toxicity for 82. Okay, does that make sense? And when we saw this, we realized, hey, we could actually figure out all the activities for 81, 82, 83 that could make them better, um, which ones are anti-targets that make them worse, and so on and so forth. Okay? So, for example, 81. If we remove one copy of ERK so it hits RAS signaling even better, now that's a drug we would love to have, right? And what that tells us is that 81's good, but it's not fully balanced. It's not there yet. Okay? On the other hand, if we remove what we call an anti-target, remove a copy of TOR from 81, then 81 becomes 82. All right? Consistent with the idea that you have to balance the activities. All right? Does that make sense? Okay. So basically, we went back to Kayvon and Arvin. We said we need an 81 derivative. But it has to have activity against RAS signaling. You have to get rid of this activity against mTOR. You still have to inhibit the pathway. You don't get around that. So go downstream of this feed across. And believe it or not, they could do this. All right? So they made derivatives. Uh, they did some modeling. They made derivatives. They sent two of them back to us, which I'll call AD1B and AD1C. And you can see these are the drugs we really care about. And if you look at their in vitro kinase activity, let's look at AD1B. It hits SARC, but not too hard. We can show that it's important. Hits BRAF, not too hard. It leaves mTOR alone. It gets the downstream target of mTOR, S6 kinase. You've got your three pathways. Everything's back in balance. 
and there you go. And in fact, if we throw more genetics at it, we can't make that any better. Although to be fair, there's not a lot of room for improvement here. Okay. So is this a fly phenomenon? No. We went into mice, all right, so first of all, and human cell lines. So here's an example of a human cell line, MZCRC1 cells. These are medullary thyroid carcinoma cell lines. Vendetinib has a well-known activity against it, but you can see that AD1 and AD1B are about 600-fold better than vendetinib. Now, that's not very impressive to me. You can throw bleach on here, and it works even better. Uh, so we then moved into xenografts, which is pretty much all we had. There are no successful uh, transgenic lines, although some attempts have been made. But we didn't cheat. We grew the tumors, in this case TT, which are uh, medullary thyroid carcinoma cell lines. We grew TT cells for 46 days until they were at least 100 millimeters in size of real tumors. And then we asked whether the drugs could reverse the tumor genesis. In that case, vendetinib, not so good. But AD1B, far more successful. Okay. And importantly, if we just look at body weights of nor otherwise normal mice, just looking at the toxicity of these drugs, vendetinib reduces body weight, has a well-known toxicity. It's pretty good. Actually, a lot of drugs will be down here. But it still shows toxicity. But AD1B at even very high doses shows no difference from vehicle. Okay? And again, we can show that's because we're achieving balanced polypharmacology. Targets are hit, not too hard, but in a balanced way that overall keeps the network back into balance. And the tumors, on the other hand, which are in a completely different network, don't like it. Okay. So um, now I'm going to move on to some, un so this is all published. We move into some newer um, unpublished work from Derta. And that is, we begin to think more deeply about the effects of these drugs on um, the patients. And I have to say, since I started the center, I've really come to think more deeply about toxicity. It's easy to keep things theoretically and say that patients will be happy to take incredibly toxic drugs because they'll be so grateful to get their tumor down. First of all, these drugs only often give them weeks or months, and that's a really bad quality of life because these drugs are really awful. And I've gotten to see this up close and personal. So we've really started to think more deeply about this. So to get at these issues, what Derta has done in flies, in mice, and human cell lines is he's begun to look at the effects of these drugs on the signaling pathways in the animal. Okay? For example, now this is, I'm going to show you, I'm going to focus on fly work because I don't have time to go through everything. But let's focus on the fly work here because it's really where everything was generated from. What Derta did is he grew a tumor, in this case a red tumor. He um, then pulled the tumor out of the fly, okay? ground it up, and then he took everything else, basically the carcass, and ground it up as well. So these are very crude experiments. These are sort of um, experiments 1.0 in this. In the fly, he has 18 different pathway readouts. In mammals, he has 57 pathway readouts. These are just looking at what happens to these various pathways when you add for a drug, for example, serafinib, which is a commonly used kinase inhibitor. And to simplify this, I'm going to gray these out a bit here. Let's focus on a few targets here. Serafinib in the tumor um, gets ERK, although I have to say the bounce back is the, such that the steady state of its activity on this pathway is not very impressive. But here's the more important point. Let's look at the normal tissue, what serafinib does to that. Phosphojunk is way down. That's actually not a good thing. But as I showed you in the uh, previous few slides, what's a much bigger problem is phospho-ERK in the normal tissue is way up. And remember I told you, that is not good 
for, um, in terms of tox. And for all the same experiments I showed you, we can show that that is just killing these flies. Insulin receptor, all right, again, compared to controls, is also way up here. These are problems, okay, in the normal tissue. This is why serafinib has its well-known toxic effects. This is a very nasty drug, all right? So what do you do about this? Well, what Adertu began to do is he looked at these, he started to add second drugs, okay, with the idea of pushing down things that are a problem, all right? So for example, if along with serafinib, he adds bortezomib, which is the proteasome inhibitor. And again, let me back off on some of the targets here. He gets phosphojunk back into balance, just as he needs. But look, ERK is, if anything, it's even worse. And it doesn't do anything to insulin receptor here, which is also a problem, okay? So it's, it's annoying. It's like whack-a-mole. You push one thing down, other things pop back up, okay? And this is generally what he sees. So he went to a third drug, a fourth drug. I'm, I'm mercifully not show you all the steps in this. Let me just show you the outcome to all of this, okay? Um, DMSO alone controls. You get no adults, right? Serapnib, you get about 15% adults. And then as you add more and more of these drugs, you can see counterintuitively, the fly gets better and better and better. When I say counterintuitively, I mean the more drugs you add, the less toxic it's actually becoming, right? Not more toxic, less toxic. And this goes back to this idea of balanced polypharmacology. Now, not with a single drug, we're mimicking that, mimicking that with a cocktail of drugs. And I'll get back to that when I talk about the center and patients, okay? So we've also looked at these in mice. We have a ton of data on this. I'm just gonna show you one slide. These are TT cell xenografts um, put into mice. And compared to controls, serafinib, which would be about here, actually be very close to controls. You can see bortezomib helps quite a bit, but as you go to three drugs, it helps even more. I won't show you the fourth, but it's even more dramatic. But here, here's an important point in these mice. The doses, here's typical doses that are used in these mouse experiments are basically maximum tolerated dose, MTD. These are the concentrations that they're just using in these mice, very low concentrations. These are extremely low toxicity cocktails, okay? And that's why these mice, basically, you can see they just go on and on, all right? These tumors flatline, okay? So in conclusion, on this part of the talk, what we've um, been exploring is using flies in these whole animal models to develop drugs that don't hit a single target. We don't really care what the target is, but they hit a cocktail of targets. What they're really doing is they're taking the network and they're pushing it back to normalcy in the normal <coughs> tissue. The tumor tissue, which is in a different network, when it gets pushed, goes in a different direction. Okay? And by creating carefully balanced cocktails, either by one drug and tinkering with it or multiple drugs to balance the problems of the other drugs, however you do it, you can create a polypharmacological approach that straitjackets the signaling towards normal. The normal <coughs> tissue is fine with that. The tumor tissue, not so much so. Okay? So we do the screen, we identify the initial hits, we use the fly genetics to identify targets and anti-targets, things that it has to act higher or lower activity on. We then work with really smart people to develop derivatives of those. And I should say, and I'm concluding this part, that Masa Sonashita in my lab, in particular, is really focusing now on taking already approved drugs or drugs that are in clinical trials that are struggling. He's mapping out the problems of those drugs 
and making what we call super versions of those. So for example, with serapinib, he's now creating what we call super serapinib, which is a derivative that will have a much better balanced therapeutic index. And that is um, being done in collaboration with Arvind Dard, a, a medicinal chemist, and Avner Schlesinger, a, a chemical modeler. So I'm very excited about this uh, possibility to really take these drugs and in a rational way, really move them to a much more useful chemical space. Okay, so now I'm gonna, that was my complex drug thing. Let's talk about complex models. Actually, before I do that, is there any quick questions? You guys are all good? Um, yeah. What is the cause of death from activated MET in flies, do you know? Activated red? Yeah. The the, the cancer model that you're talking about. Do you know what they really die from? What do they really die? Yeah, the question is, what do they really die from? Um, do they die, for example, from cachexia, <laughs> which they actually might? Um, and I would say we, do, we haven't really closely looked at it. We know it's tumor dependent, but um, we have not really looked at it. And, and what I didn't show you is that a lot of these models, like the one I'm about to show you, we strictly turn on the oncogenes in the adults. So there's no developmental problems that are killing them, that sort of thing. Okay, the one I showed you was, I stuck with development just because it was an easy one to show. If you're taking questions now, uh, one very Depends on the question thing, is. One very fundamental thing at the bottom of this, because I was with the fly lab with Eduardo Moreno, uh, uh, that when we tried to grow tumors in the fly and we cut sections, we could never see any connection with the hemolymph. And we tried some of the drops. We took the samples Connection of, to the hemolymph. Yeah, the, the tumor, tumor, blood the the tumor never had any supply line for any drug to reach. But it shouldn't because it's an open circulatory system, yeah? yeah so the so hemolymph, as we and others have shown, on actually... On the ring, uh, on the torso, when mm -hmm. we took the sections and we saw, it was just a bump uh, without any proper connection for the drugs to reach. And our radiography never showed any traces of the drugs in the fly tumors. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the... How do you ensure that the drug is reaching the target? And second, when you see the larva is uh, going to the adult stage, one of the important parameters also to consider. You know, you know, we'll have to make these questions quick because I do want to move on. So let me just answer that one, and then I'll take the second one. Ask me that at the end of the talk, okay? Um, so, to, so the question is, how do we know the drugs get there, and what about this blood supply? I didn't put a slide in here, but for oxygen. Actually, the tumors, secondary tumors, remodeled trachea, which is the fly sort of air hoses, into the tumors. So it's neotracheogenesis. It's not me. So once I gave a talk, my mom called me on my cell phone, but it's not, that's probably, probably not her. Um, although my mother's fairly persistent, so it's possible. Pick it up. So, we, so the oxygen comes from a trachea, neotracheogenesis, that's remodeled into them. We've actually published images of this. And we're pretty confident the drugs are getting to the tumor because when we dial down the suspected target just in the tumor, we can show in the presence of the drug that that, um, that, that synergizes with the knockdown. So we're pretty confident that the drug is acting on the tumor. So I should probably move forward and you can ask me that second question um, at the end. Um, okay, so fly, uh, so, so complex models. So I've shown you complex drugs, let's talk about models. Not my mom. Okay. Um, and this is work by Erdem Bangi, uh, really also a very impressive postdoc in the lab. And what Erdem was interested in was colorectal cancer. So how do you build a colorectal? I have to say flies do have a gut. Okay, no thyroid, they do have gut. So how do you build a colorectal cancer model in a fly? 
So what he did, he didn't want to just build something that looks like a duck and quacks like a duck. So he went into the human sequencing data, and he asked, what's the most common double, triple, quadruple combination of mutations that you see in actual patients? Not the most common mutations overall, but what do you see together? Because certain mutations you just don't see together. So I can tell you the most common quadruple you'll see in a patient is RAS, P10, APC, P53. He built that. He built the second most common, third, and fourth most common quadruples. And I have to say, he only stopped at four because the statistics fall off like a table. So there are basically no quintuple combinations that you'll see in currently sequenced patients. Okay? So he built the four most common quadruples. For each one, he built all the subset triples, all the subset doubles, and all the singles. Okay? Each one an individual fly line. That's 15 transgenic lines for each quadruple. And just to be clear, this quadruple has nine transgenes in it. Okay? Um, so now let me show you, I'm not going to go through all the details, but let me show you what a fly colorectal tumor looks like. First of all, he sees aspects of proliferation, multilayering, um, epithelial to mesenchymal transition, uh, metastasis-like distant migration. He also sees in various combinations blocks of senescence and apoptosis. So he's looked at all these subcombinations, and you won't be surprised to hear, there's a lot of emergent properties that he sees. Okay? We all know about this, but it's amazing to see it. Here is a portion of the fly hindgut. This also has GFP to mark the trans transformed cells. So here's an example of multi-layering of cells. Okay, the cells are actually quite tiny here. So they show polyp-like formation. Here's a portion of the fly hindgut. Now we're zooming in more. This is the hindgut itself. This is a muscle layer around it. This in blue here is what's called a trachea. It carries oxygen. We were just talking about that. And what happens is cells, a subset of cells, will periodically, a cell will extend a process, push through the muscle wall, essentially find a trachea, as far as we can tell, it's what it's doing. It enwraps around the trachea, corkscrews around it, and then the cell will walk out of the gut, hop onto the trachea, and go off to distant sites. Right? And so we'll find the fly just littered with these gut cells. And some of them will settle in, in certain places and slow grow secondary tumors, right? and eventually kill the fly. All of this, I should say, as we talk about, is all activated. We turn it on using magic fly tricks just in the adult gut. And it, we see tumors within about a week, and the fly is dead within about three to four weeks. Okay? So um, here is some of the signaling complexity that we see using these various phenotypes. If you write quickly, you can find out all the interactions here. Up oh, too late. So <laughs> what Aram did is, and this is a key question, that I want to, that's what I really want, really want to bring out here. What is the difference between a genetically simple model and one that's more complex? Okay. So as I mentioned, 3% of drugs that go into clinical trials for colorectal cancer were approved. What's the problem? Right. So he, he took 16 drugs, many of which uh, went into trials for uh, colon cancer, all of which failed. Okay, And he asked, how do they do against a one-hit fly, equivalent to the KRAS mouse? It's very commonly used in colorectal cancer research. So the single-hit RAS alone fly, 12 of the 16 drugs worked beautifully to knock the tumor out. Okay? He then went to the four-hit fly, and zero of 16 worked to do pretty much anything to that tumor. So you can see why these drugs are failing, because the models are too simple. In general, the more uh, mutations we pile into these flies, the fewer drugs work in them. And th um, 
getting single drugs to work in this four-hit model, we just haven't found that yet. And we've thrown a lot at it. Okay. Now, remember, Aridim has all these subset combinations of these. I'm not going to go into this in detail. But he was able to, using the subcombinations, to map out what combinations drive resistance to several of these drugs. And using that information and some, you know, uh, the genetic approaches that I've outlined before, he was able to show, for example, in this particular quadruple, that this two-drug combination is, can successfully knock that tumor down. And it works by really interesting mechanism, which I'm happy to talk about in the discussion section, but I should probably move on. Really a novel mechanism here. My point here is that, by, uh, that once we move up into this complexity now, now we're really seeing a very different drug response. So complexity matters. Now, is this just a fly thing? Let me just show you some of the uh, mouse data. I should say that this paper is in infinite review. If anybody here is reviewer four, you should lighten up. <laughs> so uh, just as we predicted in the flies, the single agents alone, I'm just going to show you uh, one concentration here, BEZ235, which is a dual PI3 kinase inhibitor. You can see that and bortezomib, the blue is over here. These are individual mice and change in tumor volume. That doesn't work so well. But here in green, um, you can see that the dual combination actually works quite well. And what's really interesting is that the flies predicted that the lower dose would work better. And that's exactly what we see in the mouse as well. And these are for particular reasons, which I'm happy to discuss. So we think this uh, is a very interesting uh, combination. And we're trying to drive this forward into the clinics. So in general, in summary, in terms of drugs and models, Complexity matters, right? And you have to embrace that complexity. Now, what I can't tell you is, is four enough? So I'm going to get into that basically now. How much complexity counts? We had to stop at four because if we're pinning our work on what's common between patients, four is as far as we can go, okay? But I don't know that that's enough. Actually, nobody knows that that's enough. Um, so although complexity matters, we wanted to take this to sort of the next logical step and really go patient by patient, use our magic fly tools that we've been building, and, and start with the most complex that we can figure out how to do and walk backwards. So here is the fly part of the team for a Center for Personalized Cancer Therapeutics. We opened our door in September. We have 22 patients currently. Um, it's actually gotten a little bit of media attention. If you hit the web, you'll get to see all about it. Um, Peter, Jess, Erdom, and Alex have really been building this from scratch. They've done a ton of, of developing of new technologies, and I can't, uh, I can't say enough about how impressive these guys are. Okay? But this is a larger effort, so it's, it's a team. My co-directors are Marshall Posner, who among many things is director of clinical trials at uh, the Tisch Cancer Center at Icon School of Medicine. Eric Schott, who is our genetics genomics guru. He's a director um, of the Institute of Gene Genomics and Multiscale Biology. He's also chair of genetics and genomics at Mount Sinai. And he has a large army of bioinformaticists, sequencers, and so on, and has been really in enormously helpful. And I have to say that we have, every Wednesday morning at 9 AM, we have a meeting. It's really an amazing meeting. We have clinicians, um, you know, oncologists. We have mouse geneticists, flies geneticists, pharmacologists. Um, genetic counselors, bioinformaticists, and so on. And we all get together every Wednesday morning, and we've basically been building this approach 
bootstrapping our way up and talking about individual patients to try to move our way through, embrace the complexity of these patients, and then eventually treat them. So this is going to be a fancy little presentation. This was actually made for donors. If you want to give money, that's great. Um, so it's going to be a little bit slick. Um, what the, in the center, we take three types of tumors now. And the reason you understand that flies are a little bit tumor agnostic, but we need enough statistics to show that this is actually a good idea. And then if it is a good idea, to show insurance companies it's a good idea so that they'll pick up the tab. Okay, so so far they're not going to do it. It's really supported from donations, especially from Mount Sinai. Um, we now take medullary thyroid carcinoma, which you should know all about now, colorectal cancer, and triple negative breast cancer. Those are the three patient types that we accept. So once a patient comes in, the tumor comes out, okay? And pathology, led by Michael Donovan and Nina Longtine, um, make sure that the tumor has at least 40% purity, preferably higher. Um, in a perfect world, I have to say we're not very good at this yet, but in a perfect world, Part of that tumor comes out and we put it into the mouse for, for example, patient-derived xenograft or working with Carlos Cordoncardo, pulling stem cells out of here and building tumors in the mouse. This part we're still tinkering with. However, more importantly, the other part of the tumor, and check this out, this is my little conceptual sequencing thing here. Wait, there we go. Um, we sequence the tumor both for DNA and RNA. Okay. The RNA goes to Eric's group, and they use that to do a network analysis, which turns out to be very useful for pathway analysis when we have questions about variants. But mainly, we focus on uh, the DNA sequence and the variants within there. Okay? So what do we do? If the variants, and it's not just how many variants are, but whether we think it actually changes the activity of the protein, which is a much harder question. If the patient has 10 or less, we'll just take all 10 of them and knock them all down in flies, for example, with a colorectal cancer patient just in the gut. Okay? And that will be your personalized fly avatar. If you have more than 10, in some cases we have like 50, what we'll do is we'll put what we call the base mutations in, RAS, P53, all that. We'll get that tumor going in that patient's base model. And so let's say we have a three-hit model from them that leaves us 47 to go in that patient. We'll take each of the 47, test them one, by one by one in the presence of those core mutations and ask which ones are contributing to driving the tumor functionally, okay? Don't care what the literature says. We don't really worry about that. Just functionally, what's driving the tumor? And we'll pile in up to about a 12-hit fly at this point, okay? Once we make that, you guys know exactly what we're gonna do, and this is the personalized fly model built by these guys. We're going to pull out our robotics, okay? And we're going to screen. Now, we can't put in novel drugs in these patients. Uh, FDA will not allow that. So in, or, in order to mimic that, we have a uh, FDA library. Now we're actually it's getting up to 1,200 FDA-approved drugs. We'll screen through that through multiple iterations. We actually just assume no single drug will work, so we skip that. And we do multiple iterations of screening to create two to three drug cocktails. And, um, okay, once we identify those um, co drug cocktails, we have a pharmacology committee and a science committee that vets everything. Um, we then, if it looks promising, if we have a mouse model, we'll check it there. But more, perhaps more importantly, to get dosing and for toxicity, we'll actually check it in pigs. So we work with exemplar. Um, and that's actually an important point. 
Because when you have a one-off trial, it's really hard to know what the dosing is, right? But pigs have a similar um, body mass to what we do, and so that's important. Also, if the pig drops dead, the patient's not gonna get the drugs. And I should say, when we do the screen, we don't get a single cocktail. We will typically get multiple cocktails, so if the first one's not working, not a problem, we have plenty more to go. All this time, the, um, an important uh, credo in our center is that all the data, as we get it, we also release it and discuss it with the patient. This kind of freaks out um, clinicians because they're worried that we're going to be raising hope too much, but we find the opposite. When we keep the patients engaged and get them to see how the science is progressing, they become much more realistic about what it means because they're more sophisticated about what we're doing. Because what we don't want to do is overpromise them. And incidentally, we will not permit patients um, to skip first-line therapy and jump straight to us. This is an unproven approach. We'll only accept patients when they fail on standard of care. So once we have those combinations, then we'll work with their oncologist and with the patient to propose personalized treatments. Right? And we will work with, closely with them at Mount Sinai uh, docs to, for example, we have a patient um, that actually the cocktail looks like it's working, but the toxicity was not tolerable to that patient, or not good enough for us. So we're obviously tweaking the dosing because again, flies are not people. And with this approach, there's two things we're gonna get out of this. One, we're hoping we can actually help patients. Okay? And the other question we're gonna to get to ask as we deconstruct their fly avatars is how much complexity really matters. Are we gonna to have to go patient by patient by patient to get these cancer therapeutics to work. <clears throat> the truth is, I don't know. It would, be, <clears throat> excuse me, it would be nice if we didn't have to deconstruct every patient, but we're gonna go ahead and do that experiment. And if we do have to deconstruct each, each patient, at least we should have the conversation starting there. Okay. okay, so let me show you an example. This is actually a patient that was featured on television. Um, and this patient had medullary thyroid carcinoma, so in his case, we targeted to the eye. Everybody here should know exactly. This is oncogenic red here, so you should be used to this image. Um, and this is actually knocking down red itself, so not surprisingly, it makes the eye all better. What we did is he had, a, uh, in this particular model, it was 139 potential variants. I think I'm saying that right. So we walked through the fly orthologs to most of those. And for example, CNK, if we knock it down, the eye actually gets better, closer to normal. We call that an oncogene, and in the final fly, we actually dial that up. All the other genes we looked at when we knocked them down in the presence of the oncogene actually makes the eye worse. These are big bubbly messes here. In some cases, the fly completely dies. I can't even show you an image of it. And at the end of the day, the fly that we to model this patient was a 12-hit fly. Now importantly, this patient is also diabetic. These patients have other problems. Okay? And we recently published a paper by Susumu in my lab that that actually matters in terms of drug response, that diabetic patients will not respond to the same drugs that a normal patient will. And I can talk about why that is, or you can read the paper, or you can just take my word for it. But here's an example of a ras sark tumor. Um, you can see the tumors are growing out of the head here because the uh, uh, driver is driving it there. But all we have to do is shift apply to a high-sugar diet. It actually becomes insulin-resistant and diabetic by many criteria. And not only does the tumor explode, but metastasis starts to show up here, okay? And what Susuma showed is that you need a very different drug cocktail to treat this. That matters, so that patient fly gets put on a high-sugar diet when we do the screen, okay? 
So in summary, um, with the center, and there's a lot of people that are part of this, which I'm not giving proper credit to, is that we take the tumors out, we sequence them, and we build the most accurate fly avatar we can. We're missing a lot of things. We don't have copy number variation, don't have epigenetic changes. And for me right now, the one I'm obsessing most about is that we don't have um, sort of the changes you get when you get on drug therapies. A lot of these patients have been on therapies for quite a while, okay? And I don't even know what those change caused by those. But once we do those, if we can validate them in mammals, that's great. But then we bring, go back to the patient. And here's just a few other points that we're learning about. Trying to determine whether a variant, an amino acid change in a protein actually affects it is one of the most important things we do. If we put in a gene that actually was not affected by mutation, we've got the wrong fly. And that's very much an art form. And we're working closely with Eric Schott's group to understand this. We're also, with Nina Bardwaj, bringing in immunocancer therapeutics. I think many of you know about this. I think these are very promising. What we're hoping is that our drug therapies will synergize with the immunotherapies by breaking the tumor up. And also part of our screening is using drugs to, for example, stabilize the presentation of these epitopes on the surface to, in theory, make the immunological approaches more effective by preventing the uh, cancer cells from hiding these epitopes. This is also part of what we're working on. And I mentioned my worry is that a lot of these tumors are not just genomically driven. But there are other things going on in these tumors by virtue of all the drugs that patients are going. So we're actually doing a lot of work now to compare you know, pulling the patient tumor out and doing a biochemical analysis, and then comparing that to the same tumor grown up de novo, but without that history, with the same genetic composition, and how exactly similar are they? So this is work that's in progress. And, um, oh, and then recruitment of patients, actually that's worked out pretty well. I've got a little bit of media attention there, and that's worked out well now, but um, I've done a lot of work to go around to different clinicians. Anybody here is a clinician, and you think that this approach might be successful or useful to you, Please let us know. Okay? And with that, to uh, summarize, I've told you about the importance or, or uh, our efforts to build complex drugs. We don't like simplicity, we like complexity. That's important in the drugs we built, um, either low specificity drugs or making drugs in a rational way that's easier for chemists to deal with. Also, complexity in our models counts. So, one hit is not a four hit. Okay? And finally, taking all these to their natural conclusion, we're beginning to work with patients to see if these various ideas have validity or whether we're going to need to look elsewhere. So with that, I will definitely stop. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for your talk. This was very interesting. I'm, uh, I'm just going to ask you about your, your fly model approach. So you're saying that you're putting a lot of hits in the fly model, and you're assuming that these hits are present altogether because of the genomics analysis that you're doing. But genomics analyzes you know, a chunk of the tumor, a biopsy, in which there are several cells. And sometimes in patients, we see that these hits happen in different you know, cells within the tumor. And tumor not, heterogeneity. Yeah, exactly, right. and not, not together. So how do you account for that in your fly model, sure. in your screen? The question is, how do we account for tumor heterogeneity in our fly models, which is a great question and one that we worry about. So here is what I think in theory with no data is that if we make a 10-hit fly and create a drug cocktail that treats it, and that counts for those 10 hits, that we're probably six or seven of those hits are on the so-called trunk of the lineage of this tumor, and then you've got some differences. And what I'm hoping is that if we hit 10, and we got your six or seven, 
Maybe you don't have the other three, but maybe that's enough to choke you out. Now, I don't know that's the case. We're going to find out. Um, so that's my hope, is that another advantage to going complex is that we can stand variants within the tumor in this heterogeneity. But I think time will tell. Obviously, some variants will be able to escape that, and we'll find out. So in the, the avatar building them up and testing the drug, what, what is the time frame from when you start with a patient until you get cancer? Yeah, the time frame. I hate that question. <laughs> um, it takes time. So, so the question is, how long does it take us to, from basically patient comes in to patient gets treated? Today, it's taking us well over six months, seven months, eight months at least, because we're building all, we're like, there's, we're solving a lot of problems as we're going along. And that means, that's another reason why we pick those three tumor types. Typically, when we'll get a patient, colorectal cancer patient or thyroid patient, we have what we call a long runway of a year or more. We won't take a patient in that doesn't have close to that now. On paper, we could do this in three and a half months, on paper, and we're not there yet. So we're, part of what we're working on is to so-called industrialize this and get it faster. And a lot of the models, hopefully, will have them already pre-built for a lot of the sort of base mutations that you would expect. We do see a lot of those over and over again. So you know, we're working on building those down to speed that up. The second question is, does a lot of these patients have previously been treated with something? Do you account for the drugs that they become resistant to in your drug screening? Yeah, so do we account for the drugs that the patients become resistant to in our screening? Um, we are on battle here. We have not done this yet, but part of our plan is to give low levels of these drugs to the avatar as we're doing the screening, okay, to, so, to hopefully make them resistant. We just haven't found evidence that are actually becoming resistant to the drug despite the low levels. And probably the time frame is too short. So the real answer to your question is the way we're going to try to account for all of this is, as I mentioned, we're going biochemical. We're asking, because at the end of the day, everything else is a surrogate for biochemistry and physiology of the cell, right? So we're looking more directly at that now. So if you've taken a drug for, in some cases, these patients have taken drugs for years, okay? And then I think the tumor just moves to a different network. And I'm not even sure if that's epigenetic or just something else. It just moves to a different network. Um, we are trying to figure out what that network is compared to what we're getting by straight genetics with the idea that we may have to add other mutations or other things in to try to account for the changes that these tumors see. Okay? And that's very much work in progress. So I should say we're working with um, Mandy Polovich from over at the Hutch um, on all of these aspects. Yes. When, when you grow the fly in the 96 well plate uh, to test the drugs, the parameter which you choose for the successful Transplantation or success of the drug is just the viability and the fly reaching the adulthood. Yes. Because normally, even if the fly reaches the adulthood, it could be a zombie fly with so many drugs, with, which is probably unable to fly or not able to move. <laughs> so, you, do you also take those parameters? Not in a good mood. I like that one. Um, and we, I should say, when we screen the drugs, we're not just looking at cancer drugs. We're looking at tricyclic antidepressants and things like that. So, um, we, so we used to do rough eyes and looking to rescue them. Um, scoring down the barrel of a microscope well by well rough eyes is brutal. And I actually personally did that, and I'm not going to wish that on anybody. Um, so we go strictly viability because it's lovely. Everything's dead in the plate. You just look at it. You don't even need a microscope. You just look at it. Anything's moving, that's your hit. 
Uh, we do look a little more closely to make sure they're not, as you would say, zombie flies. Um, but the, the main thing is just simple viability because it's easy to find ways to make flies worse, but it's hard to imagine trivial ways to get them to survive. Um, so. Also, microenvironment is an important factor here because human and mice will provide a very different microenvironment to a tumor. The size of the tumor is a factor. It's a beautiful theory, but just want to understand how do you place these important parameters because a tumor in fly is just so small, bioavailability of drugs is very high, and then the microenvironment is extremely dif different, and microenvironment is a very major theory for cancer progression, which is very hard to simulate between these three different models. So how sure. do you for that? So there are many, there are more than differences than just that. There are many differences, let me put it flat out there. There are plenty of differences between flies and humans. And uh, so far we're one for one, which is pretty good. But I, I, there, I have no answer to the question of flies are not people, they are not. And so everything we look at in the flies, we always move it up the food chain. Unfortunately, mice are a little, not, so, not completely predictive either, but we do the best we can. But there's no doubt we're gonna miss plenty. Um, so in the first half of your talk, you were talking about two or three drugs, AD1 and AD2, uh -huh. and how you tested them in uh, mice model, and I think it was a Menem2 mice model. And I was wondering about uh, pheochromocytomas, if you've seen pheochromocytomas and parathyroid hyperplasia, sure. or other things associated with the Menem2 syndromes, and if your drugs affected them. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, the question basically is in, in, in MEN2 patients, although essentially 100% of them get medullary thyroid carcinoma, about a third of them get something called a pheochromocytoma, a smaller subset get parathyroid adenomas, and so on. And the question is, is it effective against those? So 81 and 2, which the real numbers are 80, 80, and 80, 81, um, have not been in people yet, so I don't know. Vandetinib, which is the original drug we identified, is effective on um, um, uh, um, pheochromocytomas and uh, mucosal neuromas and parathyroid adenomas and so on. So it seems to act more generically on, this, um, on these tumors, which if you think about it, we didn't put these in thyroids in the fly because they don't have them. So we would pretty much only get drugs that would act more generally on the network. But um, that has shown good efficacy on, on a variety of problems that these patients have. And it's not uncommon for a patient to be on vandetinib for years to keep all these very various things at bay. Um, but I don't know yet about these other drugs. It's a great question. I'd love to see it. I just got data back from a company that really looks, you know, promising and all that stuff. But we'll see. But they've not been in people. Yes. So I have a fly question. You know, just yeah. the, the logistics of making a fly that has nine, twelve transmutes. Um, that in and of itself is a bottleneck, right? So you must, do you have do you have like um, collections of stocks of the usual suspects <laughs> that are of transgenes that are all in the same genetic background, ready to go for our next patient, or 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 so, are you developing new? Right. Let, let me repeat the question by answering the question. Yeah. Which, so the way so we we cannot make a 12 hit fly fast enough for this. So Erna made the nine or nine transgene fly. Because in a postdoc, you can stretch out your time and cross things. That's not what we do with the patients, okay? So let's say we have 10 genes we have to knock down, which has actually happened. What, um, so Peter Smyber has really developed some beautiful technology where essentially using hairpin technology, in one oligo, 
actually, uh, so in flies, the way um, RNA interference and related things work, is you can put in a huge piece of DNA and it will actually chop it up. So they will not undergo the interferon response and just shut everything down. They'll actually you can throw in like a 300 mer and it'll just chop it up into 20 tumors and flood the system with RNA interference concert. So he makes one oligo that has 10 hairpins that knock them all down in one shot. That all goes into a plasmid. Into that same plasmid goes anything that needs to be overexpressed in a different cloning site. So in one shot with one plasmid, you make the 12-hit fly. It goes in. The rate-limiting step is just waiting for the, you, know, you inject it in. The fly has to grow up. You have to grow up lots of them to do the screening. That's actually the rate-limiting step. The cloning is just ordering. All of it. Yeah. I was wondering, once you found, you find that drug combination that seems to uh, work and is not toxic to the non-tumor cells, that in fact, instead of dysregulating those pathways in the tumor, you're also driving it to normalcy uh, and some other mechanism, apoptosis, or uh, do you know what the mechanism is uh, that's yeah, actually we killing the tumor? So, uh, so, so the question is, you know, how is so if we have a cocktail that's keeping the normal cells normal, how is it killing the tumor? Or is it just driving it to normalcy and is that what's doing it? In, in, in some cases, the answer actually is pretty much yes. Um, and so uh, you know, in this hairy small N of patients, the tumor tends to just sort of, um, it, we don't shrink it. It just, it, it's just regression-free survival. Um, however, overall, in our models, mainly fly, this is mainly fly data, the tumor really is in a completely weird network. And when you buffer everything, it doesn't just buffer to normal, it just goes off the cliff. And I showed a little bit of that data. You saw that the normal tissue was not like the uh, tumor tissue. Remember, ERK was going down in the tumor and was going way up. And so they are in a really quite a different network. We find the tumor cells are not as robust as I would have thought they were. They're actually somewhat fragile if you kick them in these ways. They will give it up because they are on a very weird network. So to answer your question, in some cases, you're right. We just clamp them, and they try to differentiate, and they just sort of sit there. But I think in, in the bulk of and they actually senesce. Um, and in the bulk of cases, they go ahead and die because they've got crazy mutations in them that will not allow them to move into that space. Maybe, I don't know how much longer we have, but OK, one more. Sorry. This is a very applied question. So yeah. You're working with patients, and are you, what is the end game? Where, where is success, and, and what's the next step in, in this process? I mean, are, are you you're treating patients now? or uh, So every, every therapy regimen is obviously highly complex. Right. And uh, based on amazing science, I, I, I can see. But, but, you. but where, how, how do you declare success? Or, or what, I mean, in what stage would you call your clinical study at this point? Yeah, it's great. so the question is, what is our um, success? What's our endpoint uh, for success? And there's two answers to that question. The first answer is we're looking for a cure. I know that you're not allowed to use the C word. We're probably not going to get it with just these drugs. I don't think drugs will cure things. It could in some cases, but overall. But we're hoping with drugs plus immune therapy and so on, we'll slowly ratchet away towards that. But the real answer to your question, for um, insurance purposes and for purposes of deciding the center should live, um, we need to exceed um, the statistics of current standard of care, which I have to say, the reason we picked those three is that the bar is very low. Um, 
But that's the true answer to your question. If we can significantly exceed standard of care for colorectal, thyroid, triple negative breast, then we consider that to be a success and then we'll continue to move forward. The idea with the center is we're not locked into everything that I've just shown you. We're trying to bring basic research into these patients, into the clinics and to these patients. We expect to get better and better as we and everybody else here and elsewhere advances their studies. But we have to put a stake in the ground at some point. We're doing it this. So that's the answer to your question. We have to exceed standard of care. I guess I should probably stop. Sorry. One more. One more? <laughs> Boy, okay. So, what's the mechanism of uh, bortezomib and uh, BEZ? What is the? Bortezomib and BEZ. Are you going to know the mechanism of bortezomib and BEZ? Um, short answer to this question is. Uh, so we think that pediatric kinase inhibitors do not work. So you know they've crashed and burned in clinical trials. Because oddly enough, if you have an activity mutation in the pathway, the assumption is the pathway is on, and you always look at the top of the pathway and see the phosphate KT is on. But if you look at the bottom of the pathway in tumors, not cell lines, but tumors, the pathway is actually off, and the tumor is not sensitive to pediatric kinase inhibitors because it's not dependent on them because the pathway is actually off for reasons that we're not entirely sure, but I can tell you we've looked at a lot of them and it's just off. So what bortezomib does is it moves the network to a different place that ends up reactivating the pathway. The tumors become sensitive to PI3 kinase inhibitors and then we knock them out. And so if you give borte and then BEZ, it works beautifully in flies and mice. If you give